do that, what we're doing during the season of Epiphany, which means the manifestation or the appearing, is we are celebrating God's mission to the world. And in order to do that, what we want to do is look at the Elijah and Elisha narratives that come out of 1st and 2nd Kings. And I want to do this uh, because my guess is many of you have never read these. Uh, many of you probably never read 1st and 2nd Kings. Uh, the second reason I want to do this is because these narratives are all about God's word going to a faithless age. And the last reason I want to do this is because I want to. Uh, and I think the stories are really amazing. Uh, so with that in mind, let's look together at 1 Kings chapter 16. We'll begin in verse 29 and then move on down to chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ephbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hael of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub. According to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by the cost of his young, uh, let's, let's see, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me now for the teaching of it? Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this, your word, that you are a God who is not hidden nor silent, but you actually delight to make yourself known. And so this morning, we pray that as we look at your word, you would teach us that we would see lovely things about you in this, your word. And that we would receive you with great joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how many of you have ever had someone uh, break up with you. But if, uh, if you would, raise your hand. Uh, um, but if you have, uh, it, uh, my wife just pointed at me. Uh, uh, so, uh, but anyway, but if you have had someone break up with you, uh, you know that it really hurts. 
And it hurts uh, for many reasons, but one of the most painful reasons that it hurts is that when someone breaks up with you, what they are saying is, no, not you, right? I don't desire to be with you any longer. And sadly, when someone tells you that they no longer want to be with you, you have to give them over to their desires. And that can be painful because oftentimes you really like them, sometimes you really love them, uh, you spent money on them, <laughs> you spent time with them, and they no longer want to be with you. And you could have been with your friends riding your bikes, uh, but no, you were taking this person out on dates. And one of the reasons why this uh, seems to hurt is because uh, during all those dates and through all the text and FaceTimes and phone calls and meals, what you were doing is you were revealing yourself to this person. And as you revealed yourself to this person, there came a moment in time when they said, thank you, but no thank you. And that's really difficult. Uh, but it is a risk that, all, that many of us are willing to make because being known is so significant. Like being known is so important. And to have someone say to you, yes, you. Like I want more of you. Right? That's life-giving, right? And some of us have experienced that in part through some of our friendships and relationships. But all of us, if we're honest, are really waiting to experience that in full. And we will experience that in full in the face of Jesus. But what is really interesting when you study the Bible and when you think about God is that it's not just humans who make the, take this risk to reveal themselves. God himself takes this risk and he reveals himself to the world because God is a God who has made himself known. He has spoken into this world and he has given us his commandments. And as we look at history and we look at his work through providence, he is revealing his disposition of love and mercy and goodness and grace towards his children. But when God made himself known, he entered into this great risk. Because when God makes himself known, humanity must respond to him. And biblically speaking, there are two responses. When God reveals himself, you can either reject his word, which leads to judgment, or you can receive his word, which leads to blessing. And that's what I want us to think about this morning, that God reveals himself at the risk of rejection, but he reveals himself with the promise of blessing. All right, so this morning we're going to talk about rejection and blessing, okay? Let's begin with rejection. Um, as we read this passage, uh, it begins with outright rejection of God. You see this in verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. 
Now, that's a lot in these first few verses, and it's kind of confusing, I would assume, for many of you. And so, uh, and Kings is a really difficult book. It's a book that we often close because we don't know what's going on. So give me a few minutes to sort of set the stage. One of our elders recently told me it might be interesting and informative. Thank you very much. Uh, but uh, hopefully it will be a little bit more than just informative. Uh, so give me a few minutes here to set the stage. Many of you, I assume, have heard of King David, right? King David was God's king who God had chosen to unite the nation of Israel and to rule for the good of his name. And when God chose David, he made this promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And he said to David, look, I will establish your throne. I will establish the throne of your offspring forever, Well, David gets old, David dies, David's son Solomon becomes the king. And before David died, as he's installing Solomon to become the king, he says this to his son. He says, keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel." It's a mouthful, Um, but thanks, Dad, Uh, no pressure. Uh, And so basically, in summary, what's happening here is that the king is supposed to listen to God and is supposed to walk in God's ways and is supposed to rule according to God's word. And if the king would do that, then the nation would be blessed. And not only would the nation be blessed, his rule would be blessed. And not only would his rule be blessed, but David and his sons would rule forever. And so Solomon becomes the king, and Solomon then dies. And when Solomon dies, his son, named Rehoboam, becomes the king. And Rehoboam quickly made some really bad decisions, and there was this coup by a guy named Jeroboam. Jeroboam's the one that we read about in verse 31. And Jeroboam led a rebellion against Rehoboam. I think they were fighting over the name. Uh, But anyway, but Jeroboam leads this coup over uh, Rehoboam. And he leads 10 of the tribes of Israel in rebellion against uh, Rehoboam. Now, this rebellion against the son of David is not just a rebellion against Rehoboam. But it is a rebellion against God's promises. And the result of this rebellion is now a divided people of God. And so what you begin to see throughout Kings is that there are these two nations within Israel. There is Israel that we call the northern kingdom, and it's the larger kingdom that Jeroboam ruled. And then there's the southern kingdom, which is the smaller kingdom that was ruled by Rehoboam and the offspring of David. And so now Jeroboam is ruling in the nation of Israel, and that's who Elijah comes to. Now, when Jeroboam begins to rule in the nation of Israel, he's smart. And he's like most politicians, and he knows that religion impacts politics. 
And so what he knew is that if Israel was going to continue worshiping Yahweh, then Israel was going to go down to Jerusalem, which was the city of David, and they were going to worship at the temple. And if God's people were to worship at the temple and walk in God's covenant blessings and in God's covenant promises, then Israel was going to eventually return to David where blessing was found, and Jeroboam was going to lose the northern kingdom. And so what Jeroboam does is he sets up these alternate worship sites. And he creates a new national myth. And he sets up these golden calves in Bethel and in Dan. And he says, these are your gods. And it's into that land, right, that Elijah begins to come. And when Elijah comes into that nation, things are worse. Because Jeroboam isn't the king, but now it is Ahab who is the king, and that's bad. And you see that in verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Now that's a really bad thing. How would you like that to be on your tombstone? Did more evil in the sight of the Lord than all who came before him, right? And which is really a bad thing because not only did Jeroboam create all these idols and sin against God, but uh, uh, Omri, who was the father, of Ahab, it says back in verse 25 that Omri had done more evil in the sight of God than all who had come before him. And so what we see with the repetition of Omri is that Ahab is three times worse than his father. Now, but what's interesting is by all secular accounts, under Ahab, his 22-year reign, it wasn't that bad for Israel. Like, actually, Israel was flourishing in many ways. They had Ahab, who was a strong military leader. Through his marriage to Jezebel, new trade routes were opened up. New friendships with other nations were made. Money had begun to flow in. Multicultural ideas were being expressed and being embraced throughout the nation. But from God's perspective, Ahab was the most evil king Israel had ever had. And not only because he continued in the ways of Jeroboam, but when Ahab married Jezebel, he gave himself not to Yahweh, but he gave himself to the God of Baal. And we see this in verses 31 through 32. It says, He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians. Now this is significant. Because if you think about the Sidonians, Solomon had given himself to women of uh, Sidonia, and they led his heart away from the Lord, and Solomon began to worship false gods. And then Ethbaal, the father of Jezebel, literally means with Baal. And so what's happening now is that Ahab is now with Baal, right? And then it goes on and says, Ahab went and served Baal. And this too is huge because the king of God's people was supposed to serve Yahweh. And by serving Yahweh, he would then lead God's people in the ways of the Lord. But under Ahab, Yahweh's people are now being led not in the ways of Yahweh, but they are being led in the ways of Baal. He did more. Verse 31 and 32, Ahab began to worship Baal. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. 
And so what's happening here is that Ahab not only worships Baal, gives himself to Baal, he then is trying to create a national cult. He is turning Israel from being a nation of Yahweh and trying to make it a Baal nation. And he puts a temple of Baal right in the middle of Israel for all of God's people to come and worship a false god. And this broke God's heart. Notice verse 33. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now think about this. God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, had revealed himself to his people. And he had heard their cries when they were in slavery. And they had been crying out for deliverance from the yoke that was upon them in Egypt. And God, out of his kindness, heard their cries and he delivered them from Egypt. He promised them a good land. He brought them into that land. He promised to be their God and the God of their children. He promised that he would protect them and he would provide for them. And when they were crying out for there to be a king over Israel, he gave them a king that was after his own heart. And he told that king, read my word, know my word, lead according to my word. And he told his people over and over again that I love you. And he invited his people over and over again to listen to him and to listen to his word and to order their life according to him. Because if they did that, God's blessings would flow to them. You see this in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, the Lord your God, uh, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care, lest your heart be deceived." And you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. And he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain. And the land will yield no fruit. And you will perish quickly off the good land the Lord is giving you. And so what God is saying to his people as they become this nation. He's saying, listen to me and you will be blessed. Because there is no blessing apart from me. If you listen to me, my blessing will flow to you. If you reject me, there is nothing for you. Right? And so God's word uh, exists to humanity as both a promise and a curse. Because God is saying to us, there is no way to live in my world apart from my word. And so here's the deal. Israel rejected God, and they turned to Baal. The way the New Testament talks about this is in Romans, when Paul says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And that is the human condition, that we exchange the truth about God for a lie. And we neglect God and we neglect his word and we worship whatever we think will advance our cause. And every day there are little decisions that are put in front of us where we have to decide, will we serve God or will we serve something else? As we think about our country, do we want our country to be a rich and a powerful nation 
or do we want it to be a godly nation? That is a decision before us. You have a decision before you. Do you want to make more and more and more and more and more money for yourself? Or do you want to be obedient to God and become a generous human being? You will be faced with a decision about patriotism or following God. The big critique by China against his church, the early reign church, has been that they're not patriotic enough because they worship Jesus, not the emperor. When faced with that decision, what will you choose? When you're faced with the decision between your child's success and God, what will you choose? When you're faced with the decision for your own comfort and pursuit of God, which will you choose? Israel and Ahab chose Baal. And so God sends Elijah to Ahab and to Israel in order to remind them that blessing is only found in God. I want you to notice verse 1, now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So Elijah shows up and he essentially says this, hey y'all, it's not going to rain for a while. Now how would that be a blessing? It's a great question. Thanks for asking and following along. Uh, it is, it is a blessing because it is God's judgment. Like judgment is actually just the other side of God's blessing. Right? Judgment is just declaring that which is true. And the truth about Israel is that they had turned from God and they had given themselves to Baal. And so what God is doing in this moment is he is saying, if that is what you think is true, I will give you over to your desires. It's the very thing that Paul says in Romans chapter 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, how was the wrath of God revealed in Romans chapter 1? That God gives humanity over to their lusts and to their passions and to their desires and to their lies. Now, we as modern American Christians tend to bristle at this thought of judgment. But throughout the Bible, judgment is something that God's people long for. We long for God to stand up and say that which is true. We long for God to rise up and make that which is wrong right. And we long in our lives for the evil in our lives to be done away with. We long for the evil of our lives and the errors of our ways to be corrected. We long for the pain that is in our life to be acknowledged. We long for the darkness to come into the light. And that's judgment. Right? God entering into the world and declaring that which is true to be true and that which is wrong to be wrong. God entering into the world, this place of brokenness and darkness, and reordering it, making things the way they're supposed to be. That is what we want. And so Elijah shows up, and just the mention of his name becomes a conflict. Because Elijah's name means, my God is Yahweh. And so the question of the text, as soon as you meet Elijah, is who is the God who will reveal himself to be the provider of God's people? 
Will Ahab's God, Baal, be the provider? Or will Yahweh, the God of Elijah, be the provider? And Elijah says this, look, Yahweh lives. And you know how he lives? You know how we know he lives? Because it's not going to rain for a while. Now that seems weird. How would that prove? That would sort of mean like, oh, well, he doesn't exist if it's not going to rain. Well, what he's doing here is he is challenging Baal. Because Baal, as many of you know, was a fertility god. Baal was the god of the storm. Baal was the god of rain. And so the Canaanites and now the Israelites had, been, had started to turn to Baal because Baal is the one who would provide rain, which would give crops, which would give food, which would give money, which would give power. And there was this old hymn that those who worshipped Baal would often sing. And it went, I don't know the tune, so I won't sing it. But uh, here were the words of the hymn. The heavens rain oil, the wadis run with honey, so I know the mighty one Baal lives. So I know the mighty one Baal lives. Now, God had heard these hymns sung on the lips of his people. And so now Elijah uh, shows up and notice the way he begins in verse 1. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, neither will there be dew nor rain. And so what you see happening here is that Yahweh is saying, I'm God, Baal isn't. I'm more powerful than Baal. And what he's doing is he is now fighting for the hearts of his people. Because Israel and the Canaanites were looking to Baal for the rain and they were looking to Baal for the harvest and ultimately they were looking to God to, find, to Baal to find life. And God's people had rejected him. They had rejected Yahweh. And so God is essentially, Yahweh is essentially saying, if you want Baal to provide for you, let's see how that will go. And we experience this form of judgment in little ways all the time. As we reject God's word uh, for the things that we want. And God will often say, fine, I will give you what you want. You think that relationship is going to provide life for you? Fine, you can go for it and let's see how it treats you. You think that um, that job will give you the life that you want, let's see how that will provide for you. You think power and reputation and athletics and success and academics and politics are going to give you life and protect you? Let's see how they treat you. And hopefully in the end, you will return to the one who truly gives life. And so what's happening here is that God begins to withhold his gracious hand. And so for three years... It doesn't rain in Israel. And the land begins to die. And then we see God sending Elijah east, which is really interesting because he's sending Elijah outside of Israel. And you see that in verse 3. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. And so what does Elijah do? Verse 5. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. And so Elijah leaving Israel is a prophetic, symbolic event, meaning that it happened, but it has symbolic value. And so what Elijah is doing is he is embodying what Israel was supposed to be. 
Israel was supposed to hear God's word and supposed to follow it and live according to it. And when they did, they would receive God's covenant blessing. They would receive the word of his blessing and the goodness of him. But even more important than that, what's going on is that when Elijah leaves Israel, God's word is leaving Israel. And it is as if to say, as if God is saying to Israel, you've neglected me. You've wanted nothing to do with me. And all of these years, what you have said is my word isn't powerful. You have said my word is not worth your time. You've said my word is optional. You have said that Baal has provided for you. You have said that Baal is the one who will save you. Well, let's see how Baal will treat you. And then what happens is without God, the land goes into famine. But God continues to give life to his word. You see this in verse 6. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Again, here's the point. That life is found nowhere other than in God. And this is a major pattern that runs throughout the entire Bible. If you think about in the beginning... God made the heavens and the earth, and he made the world, gave life to the world by his word. If you think about Noah, the entire world had rejected the word of God, but Noah believed the word of God, and he is carried through the flood and given life. If you remember Moses, who heard the word of God and listened to the word of God, and God heard the cries of his people, and he led them into freedom out of Egypt, and he led them through the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he provided for his people, giving bread from heaven and water in the midst of the desert. And then if we fast forward into the New Testament, you remember Jesus who immediately after his baptism by John the Baptist, who was prefigured by Elijah, Jesus is sent out into the wilderness. And for 40 days and for 40 nights, he's without food and he's tempted by the evil one. And the main temptation that comes from the devil was to believe the age-old lie that God's word isn't trustworthy. The main temptation was to go against God's word. And so when the temptation came, right, the same temptation that came to Adam, the same temptation that went to Israel, though they failed, Jesus did not. And so when Satan says, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread, Jesus replied, the man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so Jesus, like Elijah, is teaching us that life comes from the word of God alone. But what's even more amazing than the teaching of Jesus, and what's more amazing than just Jesus obeying and looking to the word of God, is that when you read the New Testament, you learn in John chapter 1 that Jesus, in fact, is the word of God. That Jesus is the one from whom all blessings flow. And therefore Jesus is the one that we must follow. 
Because his ways aren't merely good ways, they are in fact the ways. It is Jesus that we must follow because Jesus isn't merely a provider of good advice. He is the truth. And Jesus is the one that we must follow because he's not only giving us instructions about how to have a good life. Jesus, in fact, is the life. And so the invitation for all of us is to return to Jesus. Because he is the source of all blessing. To return to Jesus and allow him to let you see him so that he is the one that might shape the way you view the world, the way you view yourself, the way you view your needs, the way you view your money, the way you view your job and your politics and your power and your purpose. So that in him, you might have life and have it as he promises abundantly. Let's pray.